Jez is going to come back in a second, but we're going to just read the Bible before we jump into it today. So if you have a Bible, we're looking today at Acts chapter 8. But no, we're not. Acts chapter 28 uh, from verse 17 to 31. Acts 28, 17 to 31. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished me to be set at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And I said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. All right, well, we are in our final week of the book of Acts. And as Jacob explained before, this is a section of the Bible that describes what happens immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection, how this gospel movement goes from being this small group of people in Jerusalem to throughout the whole Roman Empire to even here in Australia, the reason we're gathering as a church today. And so we're at the final section. And so my prayer this morning is that we would, we would see that God is inviting us into his big story, that he has set what's to happen over this next age, and it's to be an age of gospel optimism, that actually people will come to know and follow Jesus in greater and greater numbers, and that this is happening all over the world, and that he calls his people to be a part of it. But before we get there, I'm going to pray for our time together this morning. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that as we hear from your word this morning, that our hard hearts would be softened, that our ears would hear, that our minds would understand, that we would see and perceive, that we would know that there is a God on the throne of the universe who has demonstrated his love for all people, and that we would know that you are calling us by the power of your Spirit to be a part of your great mission, and that as we do this, we experience the joy of the gospel. And Father, we pray that through this, that you would be greatly glorified this morning. Amen. Well, I, don't, I don't know if you're aware of the phrase, or probably I imagine most people are aware of the phrase, a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
if you're not familiar with the term, it kind of is a description of a, a type of prediction that sort of, even just in making the prediction, sort of produces the outcome. So a couple of ways you may have seen it, if that definition is too convoluted for you, a few ways you might have seen it is sort of this sort of thing. If you predict that people are going to reject you, you're more likely to act in certain ways that will actually provoke their rejection. And then when that happens, you're like, I thought they would reject me, I see that they've rejected me, and then the cycle kind of keeps going. Or for another example, it might be like if you, you know, in sports, if you, if you kind of anticipate that you're going to lose the game, then you tend to play in a way that will actually lead to that outcome, and then you end up losing. And then you say, you kind of, the cycle continues, I thought we'd lose, we did lose, and so the next time it happens again. Or whether it's with public speaking, if you kind of anticipate this is going to go really badly, you'll probably act really nervous and uncomfortable, people will respond to that being uncomfortable, you'll be like, I knew I shouldn't have done this, what a disaster, and then you just perish up there for 30 odd minutes or whatever, and it kind of is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? We, we kind of know this idea. I predicted I would get rejected, I did. I predicted that we'd lose, and we did. I predicted that the speech wouldn't go well, and it didn't, so on and so forth. And it's hard to interrupt the cycle. You actually need an outside voice often to come in to interrupt that cycle, otherwise it just kind of continues indefinitely. And I think this can, this can be the case with the church as well. That oftentimes the story we're inclined to believe is that Christianity, at least in our part of the world or our neck of the woods, is declining in influence and in its position in society and that it was a religion that was once the major kind of religion, but now it's sort of not. And we're sort of living in the zone where increasingly people are going to be resistant to the gospel. And if you live that story, it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think it often is for churches. That if you don't think anyone's listen, going to listen, then of course you won't tell the gospel. And then of course no one listens, so no one responds, so you don't tell, and so on and so on and so on. But the problem with this is that when we read Acts chapter 8, so the word of God, not our word about what's happening in history, as we'll see that we're living the wrong story. That if what we're living is the story of like, well, actually in, in Western societies, Christianity is on the slide, so it's kind of inevitable that people will increasingly become more and more resistant to it then we're letting our word override the word of God, which says actually, no, that this is the day of salvation. This is the time in which the nations are responding to the gospel in greater and greater numbers. And before I get to the kind of external evidence as to why that's reasonable to believe that that's the case, we want to start with what the scripture has to say about this and with what the end of this story in the book of Acts has to say about this. Because Luke, who wrote this second volume, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, then he writes the book of Acts, finishes it here for a reason. In fact, the end of any story is almost the most crucial part, isn't it? That's why it's, a shock, it's shocking etiquette to tell people the end of the story before they've heard it, because it ruins the rest of the narrative. But here, what does the end of the story of Acts tell us? It tells us that we're to live with gospel optimism, that this is the age of gospel optimism. But to get there, we need to start sort of back at the beginning. We started right at the beginning of the year, back in March, in Acts chapter 1, where at that point, the entire gospel movement was 11, not 12, but 11 shaken disciples. And Jesus takes them, after having risen from the dead, and he says to them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, the surrounding area around Jerusalem, in Samaria, the area around that, and to the ends of the earth. 
And he says, wait here in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you do, you'll be my witnesses and this gospel message is going to explode. And we see that it does. And thousands of people come to faith. But as people's response to the gospel increases, and as we see thousands of people hear and believe and be changed and turn and repent, we also see that the persecution starts to rise as well. But instead of, instead of destroying the church, persecution actually serves to spread the gospel. See, the persecutors of the gospel assumed that it was like a candle, that a small bit of breath would blow it out and snuff it out completely. But it's more like a campfire or even a bushfire that when you blow on it, it just spreads the fire further. And so the persecution actually drives the gospel out to the surrounding areas. And so Jesus' word, his promise that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth was fulfilled as people persecute the church. People leave Jerusalem and they take with them this message of the gospel and they share it with people in the villages and the areas surrounding it and more people get saved. Then it goes out to Samaria and Samaritan people believe and then it continues on. But during that time, one of the key persecutors of the faith, Paul, a man who himself oversaw the first murder of a Christian and stood there and approved of it, he himself gets saved. He meets Jesus in a vision, his life is transformed, and Jesus then commissions him and sends him out to take this gospel message out. And so he takes it through what is modern-day Turkey and Greece and the Mediterranean and Cyprus and the surrounding areas and plants churches everywhere. And this gospel message just starts to spread and spread and spread. But then finally, Paul comes back to Jerusalem, where it all began, and he's arrested, and a bunch of uh, Jewish leaders plot to kill him. So he appeals to the, to the Roman authorities, and they take him to a secure garrison in an area called Caesarea. And then from there, he faces a bunch of trials, goes on a ship that goes through a storm in the Mediterranean, and eventually, after several months, he finally makes his way to Rome. And we're picking up the story in this final chapter with Paul having arrived at the place he wanted to go, but not in the way that he wanted to get there. Paul arrives in Rome and he's under arrest. And that's where we're picking up the story in Acts chapter 28. Come with me to sentence 16. It says, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. And though I had no charge to bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain." And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here is reported or spoken of any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul, after having survived a shipwreck and several other tribulations as he kind of moved through the Mediterranean in order to make it to Rome, gets there and he's under house arrest. So he's there with a, a personal soldier guarding him. And it takes him just three days to get cracking with the mission. 
There are often so many reasons we can give for not sharing the gospel. Like, ah, it's not the right time. I don't know if I know this person well enough or whatever. Paul has like barely survived a storm and barely came away with his life. And he's like, three days, he's like, all right, I think that's enough time. Let's get cracking. And he calls together the local Jewish leaders. So these are the the key people in the Jewish community. He calls them together and he makes his case. He says, look, I want to tell you about Jesus and about this message but I guess I need to explain why it is that I'm in chains here because they're unlikely to go away and to tell their people to come and listen to this guy who's a prisoner without good reason. And he explains what happens. He says, look, I was arrested in Jerusalem for no reason. I've committed no crime. I've done nothing against our community as a Jewish brother with them. He says, I've done nothing wrong, but they wanted to kill me. And so in order to save my life, I appealed to Caesar. I said, I want to hear my case heard before Caesar in Rome. And so that he could be guarded all the way there. And so they, they reply to him, look, we haven't heard about you at all, which is likely. Even if the leaders in Jerusalem were worried about Paul going to Rome and sharing the gospel there, it would have taken them much longer to send the letters the long way around. Paul has come through the Mediterranean and they left early and probably at a bad time, which is why they faced a storm. So he gets there quickly and they haven't heard anything about him yet. And so they say, look, Paul, we haven't heard of you. We're willing to hear you out, but we have heard of this sect called Christianity, and we know that everywhere it's been sort of spoken against. And so they're intrigued. They've heard about this Christian community, they've heard about the church and maybe about Jesus, but they haven't heard about Paul. And because of his credentials as a Pharisee and as a leader in the Jewish community previously, they're inclined to come and hear him. And so they go away, and they come back together, we're told in much greater numbers, to hear Paul make his case. And so we pick it up in Acts 28, 23, when he says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So they come on the day that they've set to hear him, and Paul preaches from morning until evening. So if you think I talk for too long, just imagine staying here in this hall until it goes dark this evening. That's how long he was preaching to them. And he's convincing them. He's saying, look, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that our Jewish Bible has been pointing to this whole time. He's the hope that we've been waiting for. He's God's anointed one. He's the one that we're to believe in. And he makes this case before him. And we're told that some of them believe, some were convinced, but others disbelieved. But then Paul, like he so often does, completely blows the conversation up. The whole thing finishes, I don't know if you picked up in this in the reading that Jacob read out before, the whole thing finishes when Paul reads from a text in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Look what happens. It says, and disagreeing among themselves. So at this point, they're just, they're not that sure. Some are believing, some aren't. And Paul's like, all right, let's kick this off. And so some of them are disagreeing, and they departed after Paul made one statement. Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And their ears can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
So some are believing and some are skeptical, but everyone leaves when Paul reads out this bit of scripture. He says, the Holy Spirit was right about you guys. When 700 years ago in the book of Isaiah, he wrote this text. The people's heart has grown dull. Their ears can barely hear. Their eyes have closed. And he says, lest they would turn and actually understand and be healed. He says, that text in the Old Testament, that's talking about you guys. And to understand why this was so offensive to them, we need to go back to that chapter and just read it in context. To understand why it is that, that just reading that single text alone would clear out a whole room of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, we need to go back to what the actual context is and what, what it was saying in the book of Isaiah. So come back with me, winding back the clock 700 years, to Isaiah 6, 1-3, where we read this. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, and this is Isaiah talking, Isaiah the prophet, it says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Israel had a really long and prosperous time under a king called Uzziah. And Isaiah says in the year, and I know their names sound similar. You've got Uzziah and Isaiah, just to, just to make it more confusing. But here Isaiah says, I saw a vision in the year that Uzziah died. And the reason that's significant is that if you in the ancient world were living under a good king and under their good rule, and you had a prosperous period, when they die, everything's up for grabs. You're like, anyone could be in charge. The next king could be a disaster. They could do really well. And so these are kind of uncertain times. And so it's into this context that, that God sends this vision to Isaiah. And Isaiah sees God where? On the throne. It's a reassurance to say, look, your fortunes don't depend on an earthly king who's on the throne, but actually there is a God who is on the throne of the universe who ultimately decides the outcomes of all things. And this king is God himself. And Isaiah sees him high and exalted. This is a God who is far beyond us. A God who is not our buddy or our pal or just our friend or companion, but a God who rules over the universe. And he's high and exalted. And he's surrounded by, it says, seraphim or angels or literally just burning ones. So it seems as if they're on fire. And even these angels, when they try to look at God, he's so holy that they have to cover their eyes. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy. Three times, thrice holy is the Lord God Almighty. And holy just means different or set apart. That God is not like us. He is righteous unlike us. He is perfectly good and just. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. There is no one whom God answers to. He is holy. Do you know, um, it's probably the case in other Western countries, but Australians love to travel. And one of the main reasons we love to travel is oftentimes, it's when we're just, life just feels a bit same and we want to experience something different. Go to another culture, another part of the world, see something in creation that's different, experience something that's different, just be a part of a culture that's different to ours. And oftentimes, if you travel for long enough, you might experience some incredible things in God's amazing world, 
But oftentimes, that sense that you're looking for something else just remains. Because if you do anything for long enough, it ends up just becoming sort of same. And what we really long for is something that is genuinely and authentically and irreversibly different. Holy. There is only one who is like this. Isaiah sees a vision of God on the throne and the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with His glory. This earth, this creation that we enjoy is just a dim echo of the holiness and glory of God. And then the dream takes a terrifying turn. It says in Isaiah 6, 4-7, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The foundations of the temple, which is where this vision is happening, are shaken as God speaks. And Isaiah cries out, like it's almost the last thing he's going to say, Woe is me. He says, I'm a dead man because I'm a sinner. I've unclean lips, as in the, the lips being the metaphor for out of the heart the mouth speaks. And he says, I'm from a people who are sinful, a people of unclean lips. And here is a holy God. He's like, I'm finished. And the best way I can imagine to sort of describe this and what it would be like to encounter the holiness of God face to face, because oftentimes... I think in our kind of culture, we imagine like, yeah, if I met God, I reckon he'd be all right. You know, like we'd have a good chat. I'd ask him, I'd ask him some novelty questions. That's often the biggest thing, like just some obscure questions that I, I've never been able to answer. But no, to meet a holy God would be a terrifying thing. And again, the closest I can get to explaining it is kind of like this. When, when you have to get a, an MRI, what's that? Magnetic resonance image? Is that what it, some, someone here, you know, operates one of those. But... Um, when you do that, they always warn you, because you're basically being passed through a giant magnet, they warn you, you can't take anything metal in with you. And I'm pretty sure even on the forms, they ask questions like, do you have any, you know, kind of, uh, like sort of, you know, metal structures or anything in your body, you know, that from broken bones or anything like that. And, and when you go into one, and I know that I don't, and I know that I'm cleared out, I've emptied my pockets, there's nothing at all, but the idea that I would have something metal in me, and that this magnet would pull it out of me is the most terrifying thing. That just, just for a split second before going through that kind of that donut-shaped hole, you have this sudden thought of like, man, I need to make sure I'm entirely clear before heading in here. And that's the closest I can get to explain as to why it is that we need to ensure that we are completely clear from sin before meeting a holy God. That He is holy in His nature. That He cannot be around sinful human beings. And so that's why Isaiah says when he sees God, he's not like, finally, you showed up. You owe an explanation for so many things. No, instead he's like, oh my gosh, I'm finished. From a sinful person, how can I be before a holy God? And then an angel comes to him, and puts a coal on his lips, and says to him these reassuring words, Behold, because this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And can you imagine the sweet relief that he experiences then, knowing that 
He's been made clean and he can stand before a holy God unshaken. That though the, temples are the, found, the foundation of the temple is shaking, that he won't be because God has taken away his sin. Horatio Spafford wrote a hymn in 1876 called It Is Well and he penned this thought perfectly when he said my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more praise the Lord praise the Lord oh my soul the sweet relief of knowing that in Christ your sin is taken away you can stand before a holy God and be welcomed home rather than be shaken in terror. This is the gospel. But whenever God saves, He also sends. You're not just saved to enjoy the blessings of salvation for yourself. Whenever God saves and He washes and cleanses away sin, He also sends His people, just like He did to Paul, just like He did to His disciples. And so He does here with Isaiah. And so here, He's going to give Isaiah a mission. So having set apart his sin and having saved him, God now sends him. And look what happens in Isaiah 6, 8 to 13. This is Isaiah talking. He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and, their blind, and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, until houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes the people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And the holy seed is its stump. Isaiah says, God says, who who am I going to send? And Isaiah says, send me. And you should always ask what the mission is before you put your hand up to go and do it. Because here, Isaiah is given the worst mission in the world. Isaiah says, send me, I'll go. What do you want me to do? And then God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and tell people to repent. And if they were to repent, that I would heal them. But they're not going to listen to you. And then Isaiah's like, okay, cool. How long will this mission go for? And then the answer comes, until the land is completely laid waste. That Isaiah's whole ministry will be to tell people and to warn Israel to say, hey, turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. And they will not listen until the word is fulfilled that Israel reject God and so he rejects them and casts them out of the land. That was his ministry. The entire length of his ministry was to basically be ignored. His whole job was to try and teach these people and to have them not listen. It is basically the job of a modern-day high school teacher. Your, your job is to go into the classroom and convince these teenagers to learn when they don't want to learn. But it's so much worse than that because Isaiah himself would be rejected and he would be despised. It wasn't just God that they were rejecting, but Isaiah as well. And so his whole ministry was to tell people this knowing that their hearts would be hardened by the word. That even as they were warned, rather than responding it to it, and rather than their hearts being softened, that they would grow harder. That they would grow less repentant. And the reason that this passage is so offensive for Paul to say to a bunch of Jewish people, of Israelite people, the reason it offends them so much, 
is because he's saying, that's you. He says, you read that story in Isaiah and you think you're Isaiah, but you're not. You're the people who won't turn and won't repent. And when he says that, they're like, that's it. We're out of here. We're gone. But the book of Acts doesn't finish with that. Because remember, even here, some did believe. And he's not saying all of his Jewish compatriots are going to reject the gospel. He's just saying this particular group who are rejecting it are like those people that Isaiah had to speak to. But Paul doesn't finish by saying, well, that's it. Our ministry is to tell people a message they don't want to hear and to get rejected. No, look how he finishes and look how Luke chooses to finish the book of Acts. Look what it says, Acts 28, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Before they go, Paul says, just so you know, this message is going out to all people from all nations and they are listening and they're going to listen. He says people everywhere are going to hear this message and respond. That God is actually now not dealing with one group of people or one nation. He's calling people from every tribe, nation and tongue, from every possible social class, from every kind of diverse corner of the world. He's calling his people home. And Paul says they will listen. The gospel is going out. Even though you're going to reject it to this particular group, he says they will hear and they will listen. See, oftentimes I see Christians responding as though they've been given the commission of Isaiah instead of the great commission of Jesus. As though the mission of the church is like, well, just stay faithful. No one's going to listen. Everyone's heart's going to be hard. Just like trudge on, but just know that basically no one's going to respond. And if anything, they're going to get mad at you. As if like our commission was the one of Isaiah, but it's not. The commission of Jesus to make disciples of all nations. And he says, and lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And the reason he can be trusted is because the God who was on the throne in Israel 700 years before this was spoken is the God who is still on the throne of the universe, who is still orchestrating his mission, who is still calling people. And just to kind of bookend this series, I want to I kind of end here where we began. Because I started this series in Acts chapter 1, if you're with us, quoting to you where we are globally in terms of the mission of Christ. And we started this series by saying in the very first week that we are the first generation to wake up in the world where there are Bible-believing Christians in every geopolitical nation on earth. This is the first time that that's happened historically. It has never happened before. We wake up in a world where the fastest-growing church in the world is in Iran. And the second to Iran is likely Afghanistan, and after that, Bhutan, Nepal, and North India. And 20 or 30 years ago, these were nations completely unreached by the gospel. The things are actually accelerating. But not only that, but there was a group of people who in 2000 saw the need that was out there and started a, a group called Finish the Task. And what they wanted to see there was, was they wanted to see unreached groups reached. Now, unreached means that less than 2% of the population are Christian, meaning that the church lacks sufficient resources in and of itself to actually reach the country that it's in. 
And unengaged means that there is no single known believer or church or missionary even trying to reach them. And in 2000, there were still 3,158 unreached people groups. And as of 2020, there are only 144 left. And since then, that number has dropped to 109, which means that within the decade, it's likely that every known people group comprised of 500 people or more will have been engaged with the gospel. And it means potentially at some point in our lifetime, Jesus will be praised in every known tongue of those people groups. We live in times of gospel optimism, not pessimism. This is the commission of Jesus, not of Isaiah. But even in hearing that, in case you think, well, all right, that sounds like we're basically done. We could pack up shop here. There are still 3.2 billion people who've never heard the name of Jesus. And Jesus' church is called to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. He called it in Acts chapter 1. He commissioned his people, he sent them out, and at that point it was just 11. And now it is all across the globe. Every geopolitical nation there is a Bible. A Bible-believing Christian, rather. So what are we to do with this? Well, the first is if you have never responded to the offer of God's forgiveness, can I encourage you to take it up even today? That God is a God who is near. He is not far off. He's not someone who you have to go and seek in a far-off nation on a mountaintop after having completed some rituals. That God is near and His offer of forgiveness is near to anyone. That if you turn and repent and say, I believe that Jesus is the one who died for me, that I'm a sinner who needs their sin taken away, and I believe that Jesus has the power to do that and to give me life eternal, to do that can happen in any moment. C.S. Lewis puts it this way when he, when he kind of lays out what's on the line. He says, It may be the case that all your life an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you awake to find it beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. Don't miss the chance to hear and to respond to the gospel of Jesus. And if that's something that you even want to do today, we would love to help you with that. We'll be sticking around afterwards if you want someone to pray with you or if you wanted to do it just, I guess, in your own time to even put something on the white cards later on and we can get in touch with you or put you in touch with resources about what it would mean to respond to this message of Jesus. But if you were here and a believer, let me ask, ask you this question. Would you say the pattern of your life demonstrates a gospel optimism or a gospel pessimism? Would you say that the pattern of your life demonstrates a gospel optimism or a gospel pessimism? See, we've been given the great commission, the commission of Jesus, and not the commission of Isaiah. But so often, I think we just get the two mixed up. And because we anticipate, like, I don't know, I just, I'm not sure anyone's going to respond to this, we withhold, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because we don't share with anyone, they don't respond, and then it kind of confirms our suspicions. But this runs against the Word of God. Paul says, and he's been proved right, the stats are there. He said at the end of, this God, of, the, of the book of Acts, look, the message is going out to the nations and they're going to believe. And they have and they are and they will. So what are we going to do about it? Let me put two things before you. One long term and one short term. In terms of long term, this gospel message is going out across the globe. And it might be the case 
that God might be calling you to be a part of his global purposes. And I know there are some among our church community who are already considering and even near to going overseas and to taking this message where it hasn't been before. But I would say if you're sitting there thinking like, that's, that's great for like mission type people, just to let you know that there isn't a mission type person. That I would say that Paul was ill fit for the mission of God. If you have not killed a Christian, you are more suitable for mission than the Apostle Paul, who wrote a large part of the New Testament, by the way, that God used to write a large part of the New Testament. So don't write it off. It is the case that it's not everyone who will go, but some will. Because Paul says they will hear and they will believe. So consider that. But in the short term, consider inviting someone to even this series coming up, or to Alpha coming up. Because even by just like the kind of the known statistics, one in four people do actually respond. And that's not to say that three in four respond with anger and vitriol and, I don't know, cut you off from all sort of communication platforms or something like that. But actually, most of the time, when people say no, it's like, now, not right now, or now isn't particularly a good time, or I'm not that interested in it at the moment. But one in four do say yes. And we are called to live with a gospel optimism give it a crack and oftentimes it's the case that we often anticipate because we so much believe the wrong story we often anticipate more resistance than there is it's kind of like when you when you think a door is jammed and so you lean into it with all your force and then end up kind of stumbling all the way through it on the other side because it doesn't actually resist very much that oftentimes i think that's the church they're anticipating a door with so much resistance that they feel like it's going to take an incredible force to get through when in fact these are the times of gospel optimism when Christ is already at work in the city. He's not calling you to somehow generate something out of nothing. That God is already at work and calling people to himself. And so I would encourage you to step out in faith and give it a crack and see what happens. And not only that, but to see what happens as we do this as a church community. And one more thing, I guess, while we're on that, is that we are called to pray. We need God to work powerfully to overcome our fear of man, to overcome the false narrative that we're tempted to believe, to overcome the spiritual deadness and to bring life. And so tomorrow, we've set aside a day as a church community just to be united in prayer, to say, God, you have said that people will believe. We want to see it. Be faithful to your word and to your promises. Because often before God does a significant work in the world, he does a significant work in his church, and particularly in uniting his church in prayer. And so all of you, we very rarely do this, but everyone's going to get a text tomorrow. You're not going to get regular texts like 10% off, whatever, you know, those kind of annoying ones that you get. We just do it once in a while, but a text in the middle of the day as a reminder to pray with a link to a page on our website that has the passages that will just prompt our prayers in terms of God's mission, that we might be as a people praying that we'd see God work, knowing that this is the age in which he is calling people home from all over the, the globe. And so to finish, I'm going to pray now. And after that, we're going to have a chance to respond to this great and gracious and generous God in song. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would have a right and biblical optimism. That we would know that you are powerful, that you are at work, that everyone here who calls on the name of Christ has done so because you have ordained it so. And that you are faithful to your word. That you are faithful in saying to Isaiah that the people would not believe. But you have been faithful in saying through your servant Paul 
that the nations will. And Father, we, we just repent of the fact that we are so often so tuned into what's going in our own lives that we miss what's happening globally and what's happening in the world as you work out your purposes. And so we pray, Father, that we instead would pay attention to your word and that your spirit would empower us to be bold and to do this for the sake of loving others as you have loved us. So, Father, we pray all these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.